can go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Now, normally, uh, we're in the Psalms, but it, it felt, felt right to go to Philippians 2. Many of you know that when we did some Wednesday night Zoom meetings, we were in the book of Philippians, and uh, I, I greatly loved that time. It was good for me just wrestling with the letter, and uh, the applicability just continues to come out. Uh, but we normally do spend uh, the summer in the Psalms, and so uh, we have some of the Psalms planned out. But, uh, and this is just uh, kind of spontaneous, but we'd love for, to hear what your favorite Psalm is. And if there's a psalm that you would love for us to preach on, uh, I want to encourage you, write a note, you can text me, you can send an email into the office, uh, to Ben or to me, and we'd just love to know what that psalm is, and that'd be fun just to preach some of your favorite psalms as we go through this summer. So um, I'll just throw that out there. Now, if you all do that, we will not be able to preach all of them, um, but uh, it would be fun to just know what some of your favorite psalms are, and we could preach those. So there you go. There's your homework. Or first part of your homework, there's more homework to come. Uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So the title today is, We Are the Light in the Darkness. And so I, I just want to begin by reading some text. First John, or this is John, chapter 3, verse 19. The light has come into the world, this is Jesus, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that, if, that his works have been carried out by God. Colossians 1.13 He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. Ephesians 5.8, walk as children of light. John 8.12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what is the point of just kind of looking at all these passages together? See, as Christians, we're, we're to look and to live differently in this world. In fact, um, Ben and I, we went to India and Thailand this last year, and uh, we looked different. We acted different. We ate different. In India, they, they eat with their hands. Ben, ben did a, a, a pretty good job with it. I was terrible. Like, I was horrible at trying to do this. So we ate different. We looked different. We acted different. But in many ways, that's the way the church is to be in the world. We're to look differently because we have been saved as now the body of Christ, that we have a different citizenship, and we have a different king that we serve. And so um, as Christians, we're to stand out in this world, really as, as much as Ben stood out in that he was twice as tall as everyone we met in India. <laughs> but we're to stand out in those ways. So here's the point that we're going to be looking at today. Paul is wanting to know, what does it look like to live a, a worthy Christian life, a, a life worthy of the gospel? And so he's going to root it down in the, the way that we stand out, the way that we shine brightly in this world is the way that we love one another. In fact, many of you will remember Jesus in John 13, after he washed the disciples' feet, said, it is by your love for one another that people will know you are my disciples. So the way we love distinguishes us from the world. And so that's what we're going to look at. And the main point that our text is going to bring is that we display the beauty of the gospel by considering others more significant than ourselves. 
So that, that's what we're going to look at. We display the beauty of the gospel by considering others as more significant than ourselves. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to stand. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Again, we stand because this word is the word of God. It comes with his full authority, inspired by the Spirit. And so we stand as a means of acknowledging, a means of honoring, and as a means of understanding that it's through his word that we are instructed, corrected, and trained. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we, we come to your word right now. A word that you have given us that explains, that describes how we are to live as Christians. And so, Lord, I just pray that with humble hearts we'd come into your word and that your spirit would mold us now at this time, that we would become more and more like your son, Jesus. Help us to love like this passage describes. Help us to love like your son, Jesus, has loved us. So through your word today and the power of your spirit, I ask that you would transform us, that we would be a church that displays the beauty of the gospel in every relationship that we're in. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. What Paul begins in just the first verse is he is saying the gospel gives us a new life. In verse 1 it says, if there is any encouragement. So, might be a little more helpful, uh, and some of your translations might say, because there is encouragement. So Paul isn't saying, maybe there's encouragement in the gospel, but he's saying, you've been saved by the gospel, there is great encouragement. There are blessings that we have because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now he's going to list four blessings of the Christian life. Number one, encouragement in Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, then you have been saved, you've been forgiven, you've been adopted into the family of God. Because Jesus stood in your place at the cross, he paid the price for your sins, that when you believe in him, you would be justified, declared righteous, would have no guilt before God. And now Jesus, he is said to be our high priest. He intercedes for us, strengthening us and giving us the grace that we need in whatever situation that we are in. So there's great encouragement in Christ. Next, we have this comfort from love. God demonstrated his great love for us. How? Through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. We know the love of God because God has sent his love in Christ that we would be forgiven, that we would be in relationship with him, that we would go from, uh, from slaves 
to sons in his kingdom. Next, there is participation in the Spirit. Now, the word participation is really the word fellowship. And so when Jesus saved us, he also gave us his Spirit that he would dwell within us so that his Spirit would guide us, would train us, would instruct us, would provide all that we need for the Christian life. So, I mean, just, just pause right here. Do you notice there's like a Trinitarian structure? The encouragement of the Son, the love of the Father, the, the indwelling presence and fellowship of the Spirit that dwells within us. Paul does this kind of stuff all the time in his letters where he weaves in this Trinitarian um, uh, just text into his passages to help us understand how the Godhead works together within our salvation. And so we are blessed as Christians, because we are now in relationship with the God of the Bible, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And what we understand is it's out of love that He created. It's out of love that, he not, that then He redeems us. And now when we come to the fourth blessing, we see that now this love is a love that we share and we express to others. We have a deep love for others. It says that we have an affection and sympathy. Affection means deep impulses and love and concern for others. The word sympathy means mercy. It's a concern. It's the display of concern. So we actually act upon our concern for others who experience misfortune. So what, what we have here is that we are now the very conduits of God's love. And, and you have heard us say this before at this church. You might have heard it other places. What God has done to us he now wants to do through us. We've said that before. And so God has demonstrated his great love for us in Jesus Christ, this extravagant love that saves us. And now, now that we are in Christ and his spirit dwells within us, we now show that same love towards others. And so that's, that's what Paul is going to be doing in this passage. He's going to describe this love that now we as a church share amongst one another and a love that we demonstrate into this world. And so to begin, uh, I'll give a, a short story from my own life. Uh, many of you can probably share this illustration with me. Uh, when you're younger and perhaps your parents did the same to you, I was always running in the front yard, always had balls. Balls were always flying everywhere. They would fly across the street. So what would I do as a young three, four, five-year-old? I'm going to get that ball. It doesn't matter if a car is coming. I can get the ball. And so what do the parents do? Look both ways, right? Always instructing us, look both ways. My parents use that line many times with me, many, many, many times. So we use it with our kids. Um, but I remember, and I still remember this, that one time, ball goes across the street, and I'm running, I'm barreling towards the street, my mom is watching, she is poised, she is ready to yell out the words, look both ways. But she doesn't yet, she's waiting to see if I will heed her instructions, and I come right to the edge of the street, and I stop. And I look right, and I look left, and then I go. And so as soon as I come back, I still remember this. This is one of those weird things that, you know, just we remember as kids. She comes up to me, and I don't remember all of her exact words, but she's excited. She is thrilled. She's like, you did the right thing. You didn't die. You know, you looked 
both ways. And she was full of joy. She was full of excitement because I had matured at least a little bit at that moment. So I had a lot to go, but at least taken a step forward in maturity and I had acted rightly. So I want you to think about that now. Paul says, verse 2, um, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So what he is now saying, he's saying, and this is the main command in these, in these, in this, uh, in verses two through four. He's calling the church to act a certain way. He's wanting the church to continue to mature, and he's saying, just like a father would say to the child, "We want you to act rightly," and there is great joy that parents have when their children act rightly. And, and Paul is not wanting us just to look both ways when we cross the street. He is calling us to love others with the love of Christ. And he says, when you do that like a parent, I am full of great joy because you're living as God has called you to live. And so uh, we're now going to look at what is this mind, this same mind that we are to share with one another. And Paul gives six aspects of this mindset in this passage. We're just going to kind of run through them here. He says that we have the same love. And so what's helpful here is what we're about to talk about, what Paul is going to describe, is the same love for every single one of us. It's not that this side is going to love this way, and you're going to love another way. But we have one love because we have one Savior, and we have one faith, which is what, what, what Steph read earlier in Ephesians 4. We have one faith and one Savior, one God, one baptism that unites us. We are indwelt by one spirit, and the spirit works in us that we would have one mind and that we would have one love amongst us. And this love is what Paul is going to be uh, fleshing out for us. Next, he says, we are at full accord. What that word accord means is that we have harmony with one another, meaning we're united together. What that means is that we are a, a forgiving people. We don't hold grudges with one another. We let love covers offenses. We fiercely guard the unity that we have. Because we love one another. We've been united together because we are one citizenship in heaven. And we are in part of the one family of God. Next he goes, he says that we have one mind. Now, he's already said that we have this same mind, which was kind of just this general way of talking about the entire Christian life. And now he's, he's moving in and saying, but as Christians, we have one mind. We're to be single-minded. That's different than narrow-minded. But we're to be single-minded. And, and, our, and our mindset is we do everything for the glory of God. We want people to know the glory of God. We want people to experience and know and enjoy the glory of God, which how do they do that? How do we do that? It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus that we're brought in relationship with God, that we would know him, that we would share this glory. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, I mean, he just goes down to the most mundane things of life. We do it for the glory of God. So in covid all the weird new things that we do, we do it for the glory of God, for the advancement of the gospel, to demonstrate the love of Christ. And we'll come back to that. Next, he says, we don't do anything from rivalry or conceit. Now, the word rivalry means selfish ambition. It means that our primary concern is 
Not what I get out of something. Not how it benefits me or positions me. So my goal is not how is this best for me or the word conceit, which uh, means to have an exaggerated view of self. It's saying, man, everyone should serve me. And everything I do is for my benefit. And so Paul is saying, this is not how we act. And what you'll notice is that when we come through God's word, the opposite of love is not hate, but it's self-love. You see, when we look at the Trinity, the Trinity has perfect love with one another. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And it's out of this love that He created and He redeems. This love is always outward focused. Which is why then Paul is now saying this love that we have moves outward towards one another. It's not a self-love. It's not a love saying, okay, what do I get? How does this position me? How, do, how does this benefit me? How does my kingdom get bigger in this? But rather we're constantly looking at other people, which is exactly where Paul goes. Number five, he says, we humbly count others more significant than ourselves. Now, it's really easy to read this. It's really hard to play this out. The word more significant means we actually regard others with greater value than ourselves. So when we gather at a time like this, our main goal is how do I benefit one another? Not how do I benefit me, not I come for my sake, I come for my, my encouragement, but I come to encourage and to benefit others. I come because I regard you higher than myself. Next he says, and finally, we look to the interests of others. Now, the word look, and I don't know if this is the best idea, but I think of a bird watcher who, who's sitting there, and a bird watcher is just kind of looking in one direction, and, and birds that come in, he watches and passively just kind of sees what comes into his view. Now, I'm sure that bird watchers do different things than that. But that's not what Paul is calling us to do. He's calling us, this word look means to exert force and effort. He's saying we're actually not just waiting for people to say, hey, I got a need, I have a request, could someone help me? We're looking for ways to serve one another. We're discovering ways to serve one another, which, is, which tells us and informs us why community is so important. I don't know what you need if I don't know you. If I'm not with you, I can't serve you. Because I, I, don't, I don't know what you're going through. Which is why one of the reasons we come together to build one another up, to encourage each other, to know what is going on in each other's lives so we know how to pray and serve each other. Which is why, I get it, there's many people who are not able to come at this moment, but I think we really need to encourage them because we need them and their love for the building up of the body of Christ and they need us for the building up of them and the body of Christ. And so we need to encourage, again, people will come within their comfort levels at this time and I realize we're in a strange kind of season but we need to encourage one another for the coming and the gathering of the body because it's when we gather that we know each other that we build each other that we're able to serve each other paul in romans 12 i think it's verse 9 or or 10 he says that we're to outdo one another with zeal i just love that verse we did that in our family the other night we're outdo one another zeal there's a christian competition we're all trying to outdo each other. I mean, that's kind of the picture, right? Like, we see each other. Wow, look how loving they are. We want to be loving. We're just kind of, but it's all about how do we advance the gospel? How do we love one another and display the beauty of the gospel? 
And so Paul, what he's doing, he's giving us a picture of the Christian life. Now, what do you notice about this Christian life? Just think through it. What do you notice? It's totally others-centered. I mean, this new life is radically other. It's not about me. It's not about my kingdom. It's not about what benefits me. It's about how do we help others, encourage others. It's, it's that we willingly lay down our rights, our desires, our preferences for the sake of others. It means we willingly inconvenience ourselves for the sake of others. Now, I want you to think about it. Where is Paul when he writes this letter? Does anyone remember? Where is Paul? Prison. Why is Paul in prison? For the sake of the gospel. He's in prison because he's saying, look, I will share the gospel at any cost, at any price. That's why Philippians 1.21, earlier he says what? To live is Christ. To die is gain. He's like, look, if I have breath, it's going to be to advance the gospel of Christ. And so he is going to lay down every convenience he has, the freedom of being outside of prison. He will lay that down if it means that he gets to advance the gospel and continue to preach this preach for the sake of Christ, to love one another. And what he says earlier in chapter one is that, guess what? The gospel is going forth in prison. All the soldiers are hearing it. And so I just want you to think, how does this then become applicable to us? I mean, we live in strange times right now, and many of us are wrestling with this whole face mask thing. And we, we could argue both sides. Both sides have good arguments. Both sides have their positions. We have the people who are zealous. I'm not going to wear a face mask. Not going to do it. I don't care. Just not going to do it. We have the other people who say, well, I'm going to wear a face mask no matter what, and I'm going to let everyone know that they should wear a face mask. And both can be very adamant about their positions. And both can be very demanding on their positions for their preferences. And, for their, and, they, and again, they can come up with their reasons, but both can become so demanding that we're no longer actually loving others, that we're saying, look, the primary thing that holds us together or the primary means in which we're going to have a relationship is if we have this or if we don't have this. And I just want you to think, we come to this text, and Paul says we lay down our rights and our desires. How do I love someone else? So I'm not telling you to wear one or not wear one. I'm just saying, how do we love other people? What's the primary thing that we're concerned with in our relationships with others? Is it my comfort or how do I advance the gospel? How do I display the beauty of Christ? I mean, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says that he makes, a ser- he makes himself into a servant of all that the gospel might continue to go forth, and he might win more for the sake of the gospel. So he says, to the Jew, I become like a Jew. To the Gentile, I become like a Gentile. In a sense, he's a chameleon. Now, it's not that he's changing necessarily who he is, but he's, if he's with these guys, and he says, look, if eating meat with these people is going to hinder the advance of the gospel, I'm not going to eat meat. Now, that's crazy, right? Because we, we're not vegetarians. Well, I'm not. But that was huge back then. And so we just bring that in. If I'm with this group of people, what am I going to do? How am I most concerned with this one mindset that I have for the sake of the glory of God going forth? What do I want? Do I want my preference, my desire, 
Or am I concerned with how do I love this person? Or if I'm with this people, how do I do that? See, we began this sermon by just simply saying we are to be light in this world. And we looked at these passages. We have a different citizenship. We have a different Savior, a different King, a different hope. We have a confidence in our Savior. He is with us and strengthening us. And so it's with that hope, that confidence that the Spirit gives us that we shine brightly in this world. And so I just want to encourage you, whatever situation you find yourself in, whether it's at work, or it's at Lowe's, wherever you're at, whether it's here within the church, how are we acting for the advancement of the gospel to display the beauty of Christ? Because what Paul is about to do here, he wants you to know he's not making this stuff up. He's not just sitting back on a lazy boy going, how could the church maybe look better? What he's going to do now in verses 6 through 11, he's going to root what he has said, this Christian life, into the very life of Christ. And so if you look at, uh, if you look at verse 5, Paul says that we have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul Paul says, we have this mind, and this mind is the mind of Christ, and and so Jesus now indwells us through his spirit, so we would have this mind, but I don't think he's mainly talking about the indwelling presence of Christ. I think he's saying, Jesus displayed this. He's not only our Savior, but he's also our example, and so Jesus came to earth, and he displayed this others-focused love so that we would know how to live it also. And so in verses 6 through 11, we have this, this hymn, which just exalts what Christ has done and then what the Father has done because of that. So verses 6 through 8 describe what Jesus did. Verses 9 through 11 describe what the Father does in response to what the Son did. So that's the, uh, that's the breakdown. 6 to 8, we'll look just real quick. You see in verse 6, Jesus was in the very form of God. What does that mean? It means Jesus is God, fully God. John chapter 5, verse 18, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are going to kill Jesus because he has made himself equal with the Father. They clearly understand. He's not saying he's like God. He's not saying he has God-like qualities. He's saying he is God. We're going to kill him. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the very radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's very nature. To see Jesus is to see the Father. In fact, later at the end of this passage, we see how the very glory that Jesus re- or the very worship that Jesus receives is said to be reserved only for God. And so Jesus is God. Paul wants us to know Jesus is God. And then notice where he goes. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what does that mean? It means when he comes to earth, he wasn't throwing his divine weight around, exploiting his position, his identity as creator, and saying, now you need to just worship me and serve me. In fact, what we see is that Jesus became a servant. 
and he served others. In fact, verse 7 says, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, he was found in human form. So what all those verses mean is that Jesus, 100% human also. So we're not getting into the, what's called the hypostatic union, Jesus is God and Jesus is man. We're not getting into that. It'd be a lot of fun. But just what we're looking at, Jesus is God. He comes as man, 100% man. And what position, what social status does Jesus take? A servant. I mean, this is the creator of the world, worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And he says, I come to be a servant here on earth. Mark 10, 45, Jesus looks at his disciples after they're like fighting over who gets to be on the right hand of God and who gets to be greater. And he says, look, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So Jesus, in his very life, he takes his servant form and says, look, I come not to advance me, but to advance the gospel. It's not about everyone falling down and worshiping me and bowing before me, but he comes to advance the gospel of Christ. That he would come to serve and ultimately go to the cross where he would die on a cross for you and for me so we could be saved. I mean, walk, it walks through in verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. You know, a Roman citizen, Paul could not be crucified. The Roman citizen, Romans were too good to be crucified. They, they would not put that upon any citizen. To die by crucifixion was seen as one of the most horrible, horrendous deaths that you could have. It was reserved for the most wicked of rebels. It was shameful. You're often crucified naked, or you're left to die, often by asphyxiation. And this is how Jesus comes, the Savior of the world, putting the needs of others, counting others more significant than himself. And notice verse 8. What do you see there? It says, he humbled himself. Who humbled Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the, the Jews? He willingly did all this. I just want you to think. This wasn't Jesus going, I don't want to go to the cross. Okay, we'll make the best of it. I guess I'm going to be there. He humbled himself that this is the life that he would live. Setting aside glory, setting aside splendor, that he come as a servant and die on the cross for you and me. And then we read in verses 9 through 11 what the Father did. Exalted him above every name, so that every, every knee in heaven, on earth, and under earth will bow before Jesus, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now again, Isaiah 45, 23, God says of himself, every knee will bow to me, every tongue will confess that I am God. And now the same language, which very likely Paul is pulling from Isaiah throughout this whole hymn, is now being applied to Jesus. Jesus is fully God. He's just wanting us to remind, remember, once again, Jesus is God. But he did not use his divine position and exploit it. Rather, he humbled himself and served others. I mean, this 
This text, what Paul is calling us to do, it gives us a picture of the Christian life. He's saying, look, as we go forth, we're to live like Jesus. That's what he wants us to know. Live like Christ. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not calling you to live in some new way. I'm calling you to live like your king. I'm calling you to live like the spirit who dwells in you. This is what Jesus is doing in you right now, if you're a believer. You would live this way. And so he's instructing us also how we pray for ourselves in the church. I want you to think about it. How does this passage instruct us? You're going off to work. You're going off to school. You're going to church. What's my prayer? Help me to count others more significant when I get there. Lord, when I go to church, they help me just to love them. Help me not to be concerned with my agenda, my preferences, but may I be willing to lay down everything if it means loving and serving and encouraging others. When I go to Lowe's, when I go to, I feel like I go to Lowe's a lot. So it's like, I've been there so much lately. Wherever we're at, what is my, what is my main desire? Is that I exert my independence? Is that I'm going to demand other people to do certain things? Or, or whatever it is. Or is it just simply, like Paul, if I'm with these people, I'll live this way. If I'm with these people, I'll live this way. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that they'll know and see the beauty of Jesus. And so I encourage you, pray this as a family. In fact, what I want to encourage you to do, and this is why I said that wasn't only your homework earlier, uh, but... This is now the second part of your homework. I want to encourage you, read this passage each day this week as a family, or by yourself, or whoever you live with, and pray this passage. Wherever you go, I want you to think about, like, kids, when you go to school next year, whatever that looks like, (laughs) um, there's there's always someone who sits alone, right? There's always someone who sits alone. What does this passage say about that? How many go serve that person? How many go love that person? And when you come to church, someone's sitting alone, how many go love that person? I mean, not just go to the people I'm comfortable with. I mean, let's, let's do that too. How do we serve? How do we engage? We're with, we're with people who are difficult at work. How do we serve them? Remember, Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel. Jesus was crucified. What are we risking? Or are we protecting our kingdom? Are we protecting our desires? So this is calling us how we live and calling us how to pray for ourselves. And it's calling us to repentance. Because I think as we read this, none of us is just going, patting ourselves on the back saying, man, check, I got this one. Like hopefully we're growing in it. Just like hopefully we're all now, when we come to the street, we're looking both ways, right? But we still have more maturity to do. And so hopefully we're growing in this. But I'm guessing that as we preach through this, as we look at the Word, the Spirit presses on our hearts too and says, you know, there's a lot of times you're just not loving towards other people or towards certain people. Or you do have these grudges against these people. How do we lay those down for the sake of the Gospel? How is it that the Gospel is paramount in everything that we do? So I want to encourage you, if there's in any area in your life where you're saying, look, I am not loving others. I'm not placing others before myself. Come to repentance on that. And we have joy in that. 1 John 1, 9, the writer, uh, John, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all sins. So the joy is, is when we come to the Father as Christians and we confess our sins, what do we know that he's going to do? 
He's, going to forget. He's not going to say, well, you know, are you really sorry enough? Well, you know, you need to do X, Y, and Z. But he loves to forgive us because he has this radical, others-focused love, which is what we are to have for one another. So if we're going to, if we're going to live this way, there's a couple things. We're going to need to know the gospel. Notice, Paul says, this is how you live. And then what does he do? He roots it in what? The gospel. When we come into the Bible, we're not just reading a story. We're reading about the God who loved us, saved us, creates us, and and saves us to be in relationship with us. And we read not only is Jesus our Savior, our High Priest, but He's also our example. So when we're coming into God's Word, we're seeing what does it mean to live? In essence, this is the Father through His Word is saying, this is how you mature. This is how you become more like Christ. As my mom said, stop! Look both ways. This is how you live correctly in this world and don't die. So, so God is saying, this is how you live rightly and you live a life worthy of the Gospel. So we need to know the Gospel. I think I joked around last week. My application is always, read the Bible. Obey the Bible. Repeat. Read the Bible. Obey. You know, it's just, it's what we have here. Paul's instructions are rooted directly in the life of Jesus. The only way we know what the life of Jesus looks like is the more we come into his word, read his word, pray. This becomes a reality in my life. Number two. We see that when we live this way, we display the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. You realize that? That's what we do. We display the beauty of the gospel. When we count others as more significant than ourselves, when we have a higher regard for others than ourselves, when we lay down our preferences, our rights, when we serve one another at the cost of convenience and comfort, we're living as Christ did for us. We're displaying the beauty of the gospel. You see, and, and you know this, in our world, in our culture, there's always hatred. There's always division. And there's times it kind of surges and you just see it with all more vivid color. That's kind of an area that we live in right now, right? It's just on display for all to see with a little more clarity at the moment. What the world needs to see is a multi-generational multi-ethnic group of people who radically love one another with a Christ-exalting, others-centered kind of love. Because it's as they see this, they're seeing the beauty of the gospel. Because there's a lot of people who don't want to hear what you have to say until they know the love that you have within yourself. They want to see that love. The way we display the beauty of the gospel is in our relationships. And it's often then in relationship with others that we're then able to rightfully share the gospel with them. Like I'm all about, you know, the, the corner evangelists. That's great. Stand up, preach the gospel. But how much is that person loving other people? How much is that person willing to lay down his own life within relationship to serve other people? Maybe they do, so I'm not... I'm just saying, that can be kind of the, that drive-by evangelism, but what it seems 
what Jesus did. He walked with guys for three years. And we're to walk with people, doing life with people, that they see the love of Christ, and then they hear the power of the gospel and are saved. So we have a powerful role. When we come together like this, we're encouraging each other in the gospel. When we go outside these walls, we're encouraging others in the gospel by displaying the beauty of the gospel and preaching, speaking the power of the gospel. And I just want to close by reminding you that there's hope in the gospel too. And I don't mean like like a wishy-washy hope, like maybe something will happen, but we have a confident, expectant hope. Jesus is coming. He went to the cross to save a bride. What does the groom do for the bride? He comes for the bride. So Jesus is coming back for the bride. And what we know at that time, the, the last trumpet will blast, and we, what 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, we will be made like him because we will see him as he is. What he means, you'll be glorified. We will be exalted. We will sit at the right hand of God. We will sit with what's crazy at the end of Revelation chapter 3. It says we will sit on the throne of Jesus who sits on the throne of the Father. So we'll sit with God on his throne ruling over the nations. He shares everything with us. But you know what the path to glory is? It's humility. The path to glory is humility. That's what Jesus demonstrated. He comes, he lives a humble life, and is exalted. He says, when you live this way, you have assurance of your salvation. So love, love one another in the hopes and looking forward to the great day when Christ returns and we are exalted with him. And we will at that time, we will perfectly love one another at all times in all places there'll be no division no disunity but at this time we continue to strive for it we need one another to encourage each other we build each other up that we would love this way we display the beauty of the gospel here outside these walls so that we can speak the power of the gospel because more than anything our concern is that people would know and enter into the very joy of jesus that we have also Because we're not just for people's good. Humanitarians do things for people good. We're for their ultimate good. We want the ultimate good for people, which is life in Jesus. So I'm going to pray. And then uh, the team's going to come up. And uh, after I get done praying, the ushers will, will come. And they'll begin directing you towards communion. You'll take the elements, come back.